Uh, there are a handful of questions that, uh, as pastors, that we're often asked. Um, I think most pastors get asked these same questions. And one of those questions, uh, once they get past the pastor part, and I kind of know them and they kind of know me, it's not unusual for people to ask me, uh, maybe over coffee, to say, Todd, do you ever have doubts? And I love to mess with people when they ask that question, because usually I will say, about what? Doubts about what? What are you talking about? And they're like, you know, doubts about the Bible or about God or the whole Jesus thing. Does anything ever happen that causes you to wonder if this is even true? Or, if, or is this simply some kind of coping mechanism that man came up with or some kind of grid that we came up with to try to understand how the universe works? I mean, I mean like that. Do you ever have doubts? I think there are a lot of, uh, there are at least a couple of reasons why people uh, ask this question. Um, Number one is there are people who ask me hoping that I will say, no, I've never doubted any of it because they have doubts and they're hoping that even though they have doubts that, you know, at least well, Pastor Bob and Pastor Todd, they don't have doubts. So I'll just kind of sort of piggyback on their faith for a while. And if he doesn't have doubts, then maybe there's more to it than I understand. So I'll just keep believing and keep learning more and understanding. And eventually I'll figure it out and I won't have the doubts. Um, And if you're like, oh, man, he's been reading my journal again. Let me just tell you something. Sometimes, sometimes piggybacking on someone else's faith isn't a terrible thing to do from time to time. There are times in our faith journey where we need to lean into the strength of someone else's faith. Because just to get over a hurdle, especially as you're growing in your faith, and sometimes when you don't have answers, sometimes when you, when you don't know where to turn next or you can't get any clarity, it's helpful to know somebody who does. And that's not always bad, but it's not a good place to be long-term, uh, so don't stay there. Uh, the, problem, the problem with piggybacking on someone else's faith is that when they crash or they have some kind of moral failure or they drift away from the faith or from the church or from their Christian friends or from their relationship with God, if you're depending too much on what they believe, uh, then you run the danger of going down with them. That's the long-term danger. There's another group, and they will ask a question hoping that I would say, yes, I do have doubts. So they can go... Whew, I'm so glad to hear that. I thought there was something wrong with me. You know, I thought maybe there was something wrong with God. I thought that, you know, because since I became a Christian, I figured all my doubts would go away. And since I have some doubts, I seem to, you know, struggle with that more than I'd like to. And I'm afraid there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with my faith or there's something wrong with God. But since the pastor has doubts, I mean, I'm pretty sure he's a Christian. I would hope so. Then maybe, maybe you can be a Christian and have doubts. In fact, if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, or you got questions, or maybe you came last week uh, because it was Easter, and you came away from that with more questions than you had answers, or maybe you've been coming with a friend, and you're still on the outside of faith looking in because you got all these questions, I think you'll find what I have to say today to be encouraging, I hope so, because one of the things you're probably tempted to think, because it's kind of what us church people project is this, that I can't be a Christian. I can't become a follower of Jesus till I get all my questions answered. So you're like, well, I'm looking into it and I'm exploring it and I'm digging into it and I'm trying to sort it out and I'm nearly there and I've got some stuff to check out. But and when I get all my questions answered and once I understand the whole thing and how God works and why he answers some prayers and ignores others and why bad things happen to good people and why there's even evil in the world and why Jesus was so narrow on that claim about I am the way to the heaven thing, as soon as I get answers just to those questions, as soon as I get those questions answered, then I'll become a Christian. 
um, you know, really, it's just a couple questions holding me back. So I'm, I'm, I'm like so close, it won't be long, I'm almost there. Listen, the good news and the bad news is the same thing here. That is, that's not ever going to happen. The good news is you can become a Christian with all of your questions. The bad news is if you wait to have them all answered, it's not going to happen. I mean, you will get your answers, but I believe it'll be right after you die. You know, you'll get insight into some questions because of this. On this side of eternity, there are just some things that you and I may never understand. That's why we call it faith. The point I want to make today isn't, are you going to have doubts? Because you will. That's the premise today. The real issue is, what do you do with your doubts? Because you're going to have them. In fact, let's just, let's just do a quick survey. This will be very scientific, and I'm keeping track of all this stuff, and I'll crunch some numbers later. But if you're here today, and you consider yourself a Christian, how many of you would say, yeah, since becoming a Christian, I have had doubts. From time to time, I have had doubts. In fact, sometimes I still have doubts. How many of you would say that? And, you're, and you consider yourselves Christians. See? Just look around. I just wanted you to see the kind of company you're in. That's encouraging. You're like, oh my gosh, these people are messed up. No, it's encouraging, because... Uh, We're as confused as anybody else, and uh, I take some hope in that. Um, The issue isn't, are you going to have doubts? The issue is, what do you do with the doubts? Because what you do with the doubts makes all the difference in the world, because doubt has potential to wreck your faith. It has the potential to get you to just totally walk away from Christianity, to walk away from the Bible, to walk away from church, to walk away from God. And that usually happens when one of two things happens, either Following Jesus costs too much, or God does something where you think he's gone out of bounds and done something that doesn't make any sense, and therefore he's not really the God that you thought he was, and so the Bible's probably not true. So I think those are the two things that really make us doubt. You're a Christian, but all of a sudden to follow Jesus is going to cost you something. To follow Jesus is going to cost you some uh, reputation. To follow Jesus is going to cost you some opportunity. To follow Jesus is going to cost you some time or some money. It's going to cost you a relationship. And, and, or maybe we'll have to back up in the relationship because I got the cart before the horse, you know, kind of failed sequencing. And when that happens, we're like, we're like whoa, whoa, I don't, know if, I don't know if this is worth it. I mean, this is, this is all nice and warm and fuzzy until you went there, Jesus, until you asked me for this, until you said, hey, to follow me is going to cost you that. Uh, I don't know if I'm into this whole thing or if it's even real because if I keep embracing this, I mean, I'm going to have to live a life that's kind of countercultural. I might have to be the weirdo in my workplace or with my group of friends and I'm going to give up too much. And sometimes people, they, they lean into doubt because following Jesus costs too much. Other times we doubt because we had God in a nice, neat box all packaged up and wrapped up and decorated and had a bow on it and everything. It was just, and it fit right in that slot on our shelf, you know. And then he did something weird. Or, or it was unpredictable, for sure, and unexplainable. I could never got a satisfactory explanation. And whether God did it or whether God allowed humans to do it, you know, either way, it doesn't seem to line up with our ideas of what God is like. And suddenly all these doubts come to the forefront. So again, the issue isn't, are you going to doubt? The issue isn't even what causes doubt. The issue is, what are you going to do with your doubt? How do you respond? Do you walk away, or is there another option? So I want to talk about the other option this morning. We're going to get started today. We'll continue this topic in a couple weeks. I have no idea how long we'll explore this, but I hope to have some conversations with you to kind of 
um, maybe outside of this setting, to kind of give me some direction where to go in the next few weeks, because everybody has doubts. And how disastrous it would be for you to bump into some questions that you don't have answers to and to turn your back on Christianity just because you don't have a satisfactory answer to a particular question. Or something happens in the world and you don't know how to explain it to somebody. You don't know how to explain it to yourself. You don't know who to blame it on. So you just assume God did it. So here he is again doing something that you think is uncharacteristic for the God that you know. Or maybe it just seems like too much of a sacrifice to follow Jesus so you turn your back on God and then years later to come back around and realize, man, I never should have done that. And some of you could tell that story. What a tragedy it would be to to spend a season of your life maybe years away from God because you mishandled your doubt. So the issue isn't really, am I going to doubt? The issue is what am I going to do with them? How am I going to handle that? My my first experience with doubt, I I need to tell the story just so you can kind of I hope it's helpful. My first experience with doubt came about halfway through my time as an undergraduate in college. I grew up in what I consider a very healthy church environment. We were in a small country church in the 70s and 80s. We had a little Christian school. All my friends were in our church and in our school, so admittedly I lived my life in kind of a Christian bubble. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have that same experience. Um, It may come as a surprise to you that I loved school. Right, those of you who know me. I loved academics. I loved to read. I loved chess and the Rubik's Cube. I mean, it was... And then when I got my glasses with the big plastic frames, it just completed the whole deal. And uh, I, I loved so, school so much that I excelled and graduated two years early. So I didn't really think that went through very well, which positioned me, though, to start the next phase of my education a couple of years early. So I became a college freshman at 16. And you know that most 16-year-olds are totally ready for college. So... Or, did I mention that a month after I graduated from high school, my family moved from our little farming and fishing community in rural Nova Scotia, think down East Maine, to the fastest growing suburb in the nation, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in the mid-80s? So, whoa, oh, that exists. This is where I started college. It's also where my Christian bubble went to the extreme. The church we landed in was locked into this really pretty extreme and rigid form of legalism. And if you don't know what I mean by legalism, um, it's pretty much a rule-based way of approaching God, of relating to God, always uh, accompanied by, it's a lot of comparison, and it's always accompanied by um, a strong judgmental attitude. It's like that's a required part of it, okay? So it's not enough for me to abide by the rules. I must also judge others who don't. On top of that, I found myself in a Christian college that was all but cut off from the rest of culture. Um, I got to live at home, which was great for me, but most of my classmates lived um, at, in the dorms on campus. They went to classes. They worked at a Christian school curriculum company in the afternoon and evenings. Uh, they studied and did church stuff in the evenings. And uh, I had the same experience, except I worked in the dean's office in the Christian college, and I got to come home at night. So during my sophomore year, there was a, the administration went through a huge shakeup And I left the job in the dean's office, and I got a job at a grocery store, and then later in fast food. And I I found myself working with people who didn't believe exactly like me for the first time. I was doing life with people who didn't believe exactly like me. Now, don't get me wrong. My family went to sporting events. We went to ball games and basketball games and football games and rodeos and museums and amusement parks. We, We didn't live in a commune. 
But all the while, my friends were living life in their alternate reality. I mean, never having any contact with people who didn't believe like them, didn't dress like them, didn't do life relationships like them. And their response to the outside world that they had very little contact with, uh, their response was to judge them. To sit in judgment of everyone and everything that didn't look and act and believe exactly like they did. And I'm not blaming my classmates for this because they were a product of their own bizarre subculture. And don't get me wrong, this was my default mode too. Judge, 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 condemn, condemn, and then judge some more. Until I'm working this job at a fast food restaurant and I meet this guy and I get to know him. His name is Steve. Weird thing. Steve was not a Christian. But I liked Steve. He, this was a new experience for me. He and I worked hard. We joked around a lot. Sometimes it was inappropriate. I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. <laughs> Steve was a heathen, okay? <laughs> and I was becoming his friend. He started to ask questions. He started to show an interest in spiritual things. And I decided it would be great if I invited Steve to come to church, the same church where my college friends were. Uh, be- These were the friends who didn't have any non-Christian friends, okay? Because good friends don't have don't hang out with heathens. The church was the first thing. Uh, this church was the first thing people noticed in this church was what you were wearing. Now, that sounds crazy, but and was it church appropriate? So and all these externals. Did you measure up externally? And did you bring your Bible right? And of course, it has to be the right translation because there's only one. Somehow God transcribed that in 1611 to the English people. He dictated it. Um, and of course, everyone knows how to follow along in a hymnal, right? Because that's totally intuitive. It makes perfect sense. I realize I'd failed as a, as a, as a father of, of children in the church and as a pastor when I went to a church one time and my, Aaron, my daughter, didn't know how to follow along in a hymnal. I'm like, well, I am probably, uh, should be excommunicated. But anyway... <laughs> So all these things, and as I started to think about it, I started to have uh, second thoughts about inviting Steve to come to church with me because I wanted my friends to meet him, but I didn't want him to meet my friends. So anyway, Steve came to church with me a couple times. It was neither here nor there for him. I don't know if it connected. We worked together for about a year. I left that job, went to do an internship, and we lost touch. But as I look back for me, you're like, oh, dude, that isn't where that story was going at all. I was hoping to hear that you baptized him. No, I lost track of him. But for me, as I look back, it was that experience of working outside the Christian bubble at, uh, I don't know, I think it was 17 or 18, that I'd spent so much time in and becoming friends with a non-Christian for perhaps the first time since elementary school and actually being forced to consider how this legalistic approach to faith and relating to God uh, would actually intersect with my friend and realizing how my college friends who love to hang out in the dorm at night, you know, this is what we did, we got together in the evenings just to debate theological differences. Of course, it was, that was prohibited by the administration, but you know, exact, that's exactly what we did because it was a non-denominational school, so it was a blast just going at each other about theological differences because that was exactly what Jesus wanted us to do. So, uh, you know, you're like, yeah, and this is, a lot of this is making sense now. Yeah, hang with me. But, but watching and realizing that my Christian friends had very little interest in getting to know Steve. They were sitting in judgment of him and didn't look exactly like them. Certainly wasn't dressed appropriately. 
probably didn't have the right Bible, and, and I'm guessing they were sitting in judgment of me because I was hanging out with this guy. Um, and I knew this was true because I would have been right there were not for that experience taking me outside of that. Then, from, from my experience, to add on to that, some terrible inconsistencies I saw in leadership. Leaders who spoke to hundreds or even th- literally thousands of people at a time who traveled the globe for months at a time, speaking as experts. These were people that I looked up to, hammering away on all the externals, all the behaviors, all the outside stuff, while they themselves were living life without a moral compass. And it all caught up. It came crashing down. Thankfully for me, at the age of 18 or 19, I was confronted with those inconsistencies and the ineffectiveness and the spiritual arrogance of that version of Christianity. For, and for me, it was a crisis of faith for me. Because my faith expression had become so tied to the externals, to the way we dressed, to the way the version of the Bible we used, to the people that we associated with. And it wasn't enough for you to just be a Christian to qualify to be my friend. For us to hang out with you, you needed to be a certain type of a certain type of Christian. The legalism had become bondage. And I found myself in a place where I was like, I was deciding what I wanted my faith to look like. Was I simply going to continue with an approach that I'd become pretty familiar with and was kind of surrounded by in that environment, or was I going to explore this grace thing? Was I going to look the other way as leaders had significant moral failures and still spinning their influence? Would I do what a lot of my Christian school friends and graduates and Christian college students do and just walk away from the whole thing? From the time I was 14, I knew that God had called me into pastoral ministry. So I was starting to think about what is that going to look like for me? And that period from 1987 to 1988 was my first experience of questioning anything that I had known in my church experience. It was kind of scary for me. I mean, because I was the Bible memory champ. I know you didn't know that was a competition, but oh yeah, because that's what it's all about. I had the trophies, and I could destroy you in Bible memory. Rubik's Cube and Bible memory, my specialties. I was a camper of the week at summer camp, and you think that's not a big deal. Let me just tell you. It's a pretty big deal. I was a preaching competition champion at 13. You're like, what happened? Well, never mind. <laughs> I surrendered my life to a call to ministry at 14. It was pretty well laid out for me. Not only the path, but exactly what that path would look like. And now I was questioning whether this was what I wanted my faith to look like. In the fall of 1988, I went to Alaska to work with a church planting missionary for seven weeks. And uh, even he was kind of the same mold, very much of the same mold, because all of our ministry friends and contacts were of the same thread. But my experience there, away from the familiar, spending time with some really genuine people, and experienced grace in a church for the first time since the church of my childhood in Nova Scotia, all that helped me process this season of questioning and rethinking and processing doubt. Um, I guess I told the story because that was my first real experience with doubt. And, it, and, and while you, maybe, maybe you're influenced by non-Christian friends or your time away from God or your non-Christian family members or whatever. Mine was driven by the Christians in my life. So what I've learned is that everybody's doubt looks different. And what I've also learned is that doubt is not a sin. What's important when it comes to doubt is to acknowledge that it is what it is and then figure out what you do with it. I spent the last 30 years asking questions. 
learning to be okay with unanswered questions, with, quite, with answers that don't come right away, or when they come and they aren't what I was expecting. I'm like, ooh, I never saw it this way. And I've learned that in the doubt and in the questions, God just might do his best work in me. In fact, I think your response to doubt has the ability to either complicate your life or to simplify and clarify your life. Doubt can wreck and ruin your life because people walk away from faith. I've never completely understood this. They walk away from faith and they make stupid life decisions. People walk away from faith and in turn they don't do something to hurt God or to hurt the church or to hurt their Christian friends. They do something that hurts themselves. And five or ten years later, they kind of come crawling back and they come back to the church and like, you know what, I still have the same questions I had when I left, but I'm not going to do that again. Oh, now I have wounds and I have scars and I have baggage. Didn't get my questions answered, but I blew through a couple of relationships and a couple of marriages and I don't even get to see my kids and I can't get the job I want now. So yeah, doubt can be devastating, but when we learn to handle and process it, it properly, I believe doubt can be faith-building. Doubt can lead to even more insight. Doubt uh, can lead to intimacy with God. Doubt can lead to surrender. Doubt can lead to good things in our relationship with God. So again, if you're, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, or if somebody asks you, what do you believe about the whole thing? You wouldn't even know how to answer that question. Maybe you come from a completely different background. The story I just told you, you think I was in some kind of weird cult somewhere out in... Anyway, that's up for debate. You need to know that God is not offended, and God is not made to insecure by your questions. God doesn't go, oh, no, I was hoping he wouldn't ask that. What am I going to do now? They asked the question. I was hoping they wouldn't figure that out. God is not insecure so that when we come to him with doubt, he isn't offended because he wants us to know truth, and the only way to know truth might be to bump into error and to process it. I don't believe God is honored when we pretend that things are okay when they're not. God is not honored when we pretend to have things figured out when we clearly don't. God is not honored when we have doubt and pretend that we don't. Listen, eventually your questions and your doubts will bubble to the surface. And if you spend years of your life refusing to face your doubts and refusing to face your questions, if you push them down long enough, they will eventually surface. But they will surface at a time of weakness. They will surface at a time of vulnerability. Because life will throw you something. <laughs> Some of you are like, mm-hmm. Something will really go wrong. And all of a sudden, all that stuff that you've been trying not to think about, it'll all come rushing in at one time. There's nothing honoring to God about pretending that you don't have doubts when you have doubts. So the question isn't, do you have doubts? The question is, what do you do with them? The interesting thing is the Bible addresses this, thankfully, and I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, if you have your Bible app, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, there's an interaction between Jesus and some of his followers that is so insightful. And I think it offers us some clues as to what to do with the doubts that we carry with us on our Christian journey and as followers of Jesus. 
This is an incredible story. It's actually two or three stories in one. So if you, were, if you heard this in, in um, Sunday school as a kid or in children's church, you had three separate flannel graph stories for this one. So let me give you the backstory while you're looking this up. We're going to put it on the screen too. Here's what's going on. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. How many of you know about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? You've heard this story. It's not new to you. Okay, here's the deal. Jesus is out teaching. He goes a little long and uh, decides to feed people. So if we go a little long today, there's a little bit of stuff left over from the breakfast, so don't worry, we're cool. We've got it covered, okay? We've got baskets to pick up the leftovers. So here's what happened. 5,000 men, and, and one of the uh, accounts in Matthew, I think it is, says, plus women and children. So with just five loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and I've heard, so, I've heard arguments. This is the kind of stuff we used to argue about at, in the dorm on, in the evenings. Was it 5,000? Was it 15? Was it, it 20,000? What's the, what's the multiple here? I don't care if it was 5,000, if it was 15,000, if it was 20,000. doesn't matter to me. If he hadn't fed anyone with those five loaves and two fish, just the fact that after the meal they collected 12 baskets of leftovers is a miracle. So that's enough for me. I don't really care who got fed. Uh, so there's all kinds of miracles happening here. He feeds this crowd. Obviously, they're just amazed, and they were ready to declare Jesus as the Messiah. They're ready to start the revolution against Rome. Clearly, this is the one that we've been waiting for for generations. God has finally given us the Messiah. And in the midst of all this, Jesus slips out, goes to the mountain to spend some time with his father, as he often did, and right, it says, as was his custom. And right before he leaves, he says to his inner circle, to the apostles, he says, you guys get in the boat, and you go across the lake. They're at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. He's like, you go ahead and cut across the lake here to the shore, and I will meet you there later. So they go out at night, which is ill-advised, and they're trying to row across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. The wind is blowing. In fact, they have a headwind, and they're struggling to make progress. And they get about halfway there, and they're rowing into the wind. In the middle of the night, Jesus walks by them on the water. The Gospel of Mark says he was passing them, which is an awesome picture. They're fighting and struggling, wondering if they can even keep this boat afloat, let alone make progress and get to the shore. And there's Jesus. Nice day for a walk, you know, and he's passing them. It's like, hey, how you doing? I'm making great time over here. Looks like you're struggling there. See you at the, on the shore. The apostles aren't that, aren't that amused. Their boat's taking on water. They're floundering. They're, for some crazy reason, Peter, who, who all kinds of unexplainable uh, you know, actions from this guy, he just, his impulse, he, he just jumps out of the boat and starts walking on the water to Jesus. And uh, that's another story, different flannel graph. That's the one where Peter's kind of flipped over this way. And then he and Jesus get in the boat, and they bail out the water, and the wind just happens to die down. doesn't say that he, he didn't speak to the wind in that instance, but it says the, the, the wind died down. Just happened, just coincidence, and they make it to the other side. Meanwhile, all these people who are on the hillside, they're standing around talking about this miracle they just experienced. I mean, that was probably the best fish sandwich they'd ever eaten. All you could eat, and lots left over. And they had just witnessed this, and they're talking amongst themselves that this has to be the Messiah, because they've been talking about this for generations and generations now. And they're like, speaking of which, where is this guy? Where'd he go? He just like left. He somehow just got away. His handlers like all came around him, and he disappeared. And they noticed that he didn't get in the boat, but in the morning, they get to word that he's on the other side of the lake. So they all make their way around the northern uh, end of the lake. Some of them get in boats and go across. Some of them have to walk along the shore. 
And they eventually find Jesus. And word is spread, you know, hey, he fed all of us. It's a miracle. His apostles apostles said that he walked on the water. He's at the peak of his popularity. The the people are ready to join the revolution that they envisioned. And that means the apostles, the, the, the 12, they're popular too. They're rock stars. I mean, this is the time to be one of the apostles. This is, Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. People are like clamoring to see him. They're walking great distances to come see him and hear him speak and to see, check out the next miracle. So if you're close to him, I mean, at any moment, they're waiting for Jesus to declare himself to be the Messiah, to initiate a revolution, a military coup to overthrow the Romans and drive them out of Palestine. They were ready. I mean, they had probably, you know, worked themselves into a frenzy. I kind of think they're like waiting for Jesus to come out and they're like, give me a J, J, give me an E. I mean, I just, I just give me an S. And they spelled Jesus with that cheers that they did. And uh, that's right there in John... So Jesus goes into the synagogue in Capernaum on the other side of the lake, and he begins to teach. There are hundreds and hundreds of people there, maybe even thousands. Because if there were 20,000 there in the day that he fed them, how big do you think the crowd is the next day? There are at least four groups of people there. Well, let's identify these groups real quick. There are the apostles. That's the 12. We call them disciples sometimes, but there's a reason why in this story we're going to refer to them as apostles. Then there's a group that the text calls disciples. These weren't the 12. These were hundreds who followed Jesus everywhere he went. They considered themselves disciples of Jesus because they followed him and they were learning from him. That's what a disciple was by definition. Then there was the crowd, the curious onlookers, the people who had heard about the miracle and wanted to see it for themselves, and they were a little bit hungry. Then there were always the righteous or the religious leaders who followed him everywhere. They tried to trap him so they could go back and accuse him of something, hopefully blasphemy, because that would be the one that would really shut him down, or heresy, or whatever it took, you know, because he was starting to mess with their neat and tidy religion, which they controlled. So there are all these people uh, in this scene, and then Jesus begins to preach, and he preaches one of the strangest sermons in the Bible. He says some things that are so weird that the crowd started to look at each other like, what? What does that mean? Did he really just say that? Because i gotta, I got to tweet this or something, because I don't know what this means. And what he said was so unsettling that his closest followers, the apostles, they're thinking to themselves, what is, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? Here's what he said. He says, I'm the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. And the religious leaders, they're like, did you hear that? Bread of life. No, he's not. We know his parents. We know where he grew up, right down the road in Nazareth. He didn't come from heaven. We know where he was born, and we know where he grew up. He's not the bread of life. That's Old Testament symbolism. Hey, that's blasphemy. And if that wasn't bad enough, he launches into this very, very odd part of the sermon. So this is where we're going to pick it up. That's the backstory. Here's the middle part of the sermon, John 6, verse 53. This is right in the middle of his sermon. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And the people who had their Bible app out and they're taking notes, they're like, what? That, I mean, that's weird to us, okay? Admit it, that's weird. Weird? No? I think it's weird. It was offensive to his audience. These were Jews he was talking to. They didn't eat any blood. We just up the ante, didn't we? He goes on, verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise them up at the last day. And you're like, well, I don't think I'll have any of that eternal life. I'm just going to pass on that today, Jesus. You can just keep all that. I'm all set with that for now. Of course, it's symbolic, of course, but it's weird and it's offensive. And he'd never talked like this before. 
He just drills down, verse 55. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And the disciples in the crowd, these hundreds of followers, the people who come across the lake to hear him again, they're starting to think, hmm, good sandwich yesterday. I just don't think we're going to do this anymore. Didn't see this coming. And the apostles, they're like, they're like backstage and they're like, we're losing them. We're losing them. Look, they're, they're questioning this. We had momentum. Now this, Jesus, come on. Verse 60. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples, remember, that's not the 12, that's the big group of followers, hundreds, maybe even thousands. They said, this is a hard teaching, you think? Who can accept it? I love this. Verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And they're going, does this offend us? What do you think, Jesus? It's weird, and yes, it's offensive. The crowd starts to dissipate. And the Pharisees are going around saying, oh, by the way, you know, this is some strange stuff. And he's not the bread of life. I mean, with all this talk about drinking his blood and eating his flesh, I mean, he, there's no way he came from heaven. So, you know, don't, don't fall for it. And all of a sudden, the 12 inner circle is closest guys. They're watching the crowd, and all of a sudden, their popularity is at risk. All of a sudden, the momentum is turning. And all of a sudden, to continue to associate with Jesus, it's, it's going it's to get weird now. They're going to have to explain some things. This is not what they signed up for. And I think they were probably tempted to interrupt Jesus and say, excuse me, uh, we're just going to take a little intermission here, quick time out, and uh, we're going to get Jesus some water because he's clearly dehydrated and delusional. So we're going to, he's hallucinating, I think. So we're going to uh, pass out some leftover food, some leftover uh, fish for you from that miracle yesterday. I'll remember that. How many of you remember that? Great. Yeah, that was great. So you just do that for a minute. We'll be right back. Jesus, what are you doing? This is not working. Where are you going with this? You're losing them. Remember the talk you did on prayer a few weeks ago back at the temple? That's a good one. They liked that one. They seem to like that one. Say something about the Pharisees. Say something critical about the Pharisees. They love it when you poke the Pharisees. Tell a parable, Jesus, because those are great. Parables are great because nobody understands them, but they really are entertaining. So tell us, you got some really good material, Jesus, uh, but this whole blood and flesh stuff, that is not working. They didn't do that, but I just kind of wrote that part in, but I bet they wanted to. Uh, So Jesus keeps teaching, verse 66. This is a huge verse in the Bible. It's a huge verse in the narrative of the story of Jesus. This is transition. This is where the whole story goes in a different direction. Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of his disciples. This was, yeah, we've seen the miracles. We've we've eaten the food. We've seen the healings. We've heard the walk about the walking on water. That would have been cool. We've all heard the claims, but this teaching about I'm the bread of life and eat my flesh and drink my blood and have eternal life because you've come down from heaven. This is so weird and it's way over the top and it's way too much, Jesus. And even his closest followers, people who had probably, like, they left their businesses behind to follow him all over the countryside and hear him teach. And they've left their homes and their families and they hadn't been home in months because they'd just been following Jesus wherever he went. And they decided in that moment, that's it. And they turned around and they abandoned Jesus over this teaching. And as the crowd began to murmur and dissipate and thin out, and as the crowd, uh, some of them began to leave, and as people around began to wrestle with their response to, you know, what they were hearing, and as people began to walk away, the 12 are listening to Jesus, but they were watching the crowd, okay? Because they're all about the numbers and the popularity and this revolution that's about to happen, and they're going to be in the inner circle. It's like, 
But they're seeing what's happening. They're like, listen to Jesus, watch the crowd. Listen to Jesus, watch the crowd. Listen to Jesus, watch the crowd. And some of them are probably thinking, well, if I could just stand up, maybe just stretch a little, kind of disappear into the crowd, and I could, I could just kind of slink out of the back there and never have to be associated with this lunatic, this wannabe Messiah again. And the 12 are thinking, maybe, maybe we were wrong. They're not looking at each other. You know how that is, right? They're all just kind of staring at the floor. They're staring at the ground, or they're looking off into the distance. They're not looking at each other because they know they're all thinking the same thing. And they're all plagued with doubt like they've never experienced before. And then Jesus, because he knew their hearts, he surprised them, verse 66. I love this. Uh, Verse 67, sorry, 67. He says to the 12, he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? I love that because he knew their hearts. He's preaching to the crowd, and all of a sudden he turns to them. We're sitting right up here next to him, and they're like, hey, guys, you're not thinking about leaving too, are you? I don't imagine anyone makes eye contact with Jesus at that point. They're all just still staring at the ground. And maybe, maybe Peter looks up enough to see what James and John and maybe his brother Andrew were doing. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I think, I think there had to be a long pause. See, this is where I live sometimes. This is where you have been, where you are, where you will be at some point. Because at some point, it gets really, really tough to follow Jesus. And you start thinking about walking away. And at some point, the question becomes relevant for you. You don't want to go too, do you? You don't want to turn your back on me too, do you? And if we're real honest, sometimes we have to say, well, I was thinking about it. Because I think my life would be less complicated. I think I'd have more opportunity. I'd have better options. I think I would definitely be more profitable. I would certainly be more popular. I know I would have more pleasure. Besides, you know, I've always had a few doubts. Are you thinking about going too? I just want to tell you, if you've never wrestled with this question, with that tension, you will. You'll have a moment. You'll have a season. And the doubts will bubble to the surface. But the issue isn't the nature of the doubts. The issue is what do you do with your doubts? So Peter's sitting there listening to all this. And watching the crowd thin, I think my battery's about to die, Clinton, so I'm going to change it right now. No, I'm not. I don't have a battery. Somebody can run me a couple of AA batteries, and I'll change that before we lose it. I'll just keep talking. Peter's sitting there listening to all this, watching the crowd thin out, realizing this is going to be different from here on out, because I said, from this time on, this is going to be difficult here. And Peter gets an insight, thank you. And, And he puts my doubt, and he puts your doubt into the proper perspective. And here's how he responds. Dramatic pause. kind of hoping that was uh, the issue there, but we'll find out. Oh, yeah, Peter has a response. Remember where we were? Peter has a response. 
after what had to be another long pause. Here's what he says, verse 68. Simon Peter answered, again, on behalf of the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? Listen, here's what Peter recognized that a lot of us as high school students or college freshmen or young adults didn't recognize. Maybe you haven't recognized it yet. Sometimes with all that life throws at you, it's easy to forget. Peter recognized that Jesus, to walk away from you is to walk towards something or somebody else. And I just did a quick 360 look around, and i got to tell you right now, this doesn't feel comfortable. This doesn't feel good. I've got a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, but I just did a quick check. And uh, like, Jesus, where else would we go? Where can we go? And what Peter recognized that's so easy to forget is this. That when you decide because of the tension and the pressure and the conflict and the loose ends and the contradictions and the doubts and the questions or whatever, when you decide, I'm going to walk away from Jesus, you are walking towards something else. If you let go of him, you are embracing something or somebody else. It's impossible to let go without latching on to something else. Well, I'm just not going to believe anything for a while until I kind of have a chance to figure some things out. That in and of itself is a belief system. And Peter realized that if I walk away from Jesus, I am walking towards something else. And I just evaluated my options real quick here, Jesus, in that dramatic pause. There are no better options. To whom shall we go? Listen, when you have doubts, you don't just get tangled up in your questions. You've got to consider the options. When you're experiencing doubt, don't get so tangled up and confused by, and buried by your unanswered questions that you forget to consider the options. Because when you consider the options, it brings some clarity to the questions. This is what I've learned, and this is what I carry with me through my doubts. When I'm willing to stop and say, okay, I'm not so sure about that. I used to think this, now I'm not so sure. That doesn't seem to add up. That doesn't seem to make sense. That seems to contradict with this. This is going to cost me something. So maybe I shouldn't be a Christian at all. But it's like, Todd, before you walk away from Jesus, what are your options? To whom will you go? And over and over in my life, I have had kind of come to the same conclusion as the Apostle Peter did, that I may not be understanding this. This may seem a little out there. This doesn't seem to be working in my favor right now. I just don't really have a satisfactory answer to the question, but to whom shall I go? Listen to this next part. This is so awesome. Verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Hey, Jesus, it's tough following you, man. This is not what I signed for, but, you know, I got some questions. I got some big ones, and I'm not sure how this is all going to work out. But where else am I going to go? I mean, you've promised eternal life. Others promise pleasure, but I see where that leads. Some promise profit or, profit or popularity, and I see where that lands. That's short-lived. He says in 69, he says, We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's what it means. Jesus, we've seen too much. We've seen too much. We know that if we go, we're just going to be back. We know that we can go out there and explore all the other options. We know they're empty and they're meaningless because we've already done that. We've tried to be religious. We've tried to pursue success and financial security and all that. But to whom shall we go? We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, we know this is going to cost us something. Now we understand. We know this is going to be countercultural. We know our friends aren't going to understand it. But we also know there aren't any other good options. So in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our questions, 
We've got to consider our options. And I promise you, when you get focused on to whom shall I go, eventually that brings some clarity. Because here's what I've learned in my 30 years or 40 years of asking questions and carrying my doubts around with me. That if I were to walk away from Jesus with all of my questions, guess what? None of my questions get answered. If it is I decide to walk away and take all my questions and all my doubts and all those inconsistencies and those contradictions that are such a big hang-up for me and take those with me, in two or three or ten years' time, guess what? I've still got the same questions. Walking away from Jesus doesn't clarify anything. Walking away from Christianity in the church doesn't mean, oh, now it all makes sense. Now I understand. That doesn't happen. What's most likely to happen is that you come back somewhere down the road with hurts and hang-ups and scars and baggage and the same questions. Some of us have been Christians for so long. For me, a couple weeks ago, marked 40 years since I accepted Christ as my Savior. And some of us have been followers of Jesus for so long, we've walked with him long enough, we've done enough life with him that, like Peter, we have seen too much. To whom should we go? You know what the other thing is here? And I'm almost done. These guys in John 6, they had no idea what was at stake. They had no idea. To, him, to them, he's just another rabbi who invited them to follow him. Now he looks like a wannabe, would-be Messiah. Got big plans, kicked the Romans out of Palestine. But they had no idea what hung in the balance of their decision. I mean, if Jesus had said to them, so guys, before you make your decision now, okay, you're thinking about leaving, but before you make your decision about what you're going to do with all this, let me just give you a little insight, Peter. Because first of all, Peter, you need to know that for generations and generations, for the next couple thousand years, people are going to name great buildings after you. They're going to call you Saint Peter. (laughs) That's kind of funny, Peter. You're going to be the catalyst for this thing that I'm going to do called the church. People are going to talk about you for hundreds of years. I know you're just a simple fisherman. You go off, you fly off the cuff, and you're an impulsive guy. But in the next few years, you're going to write a couple letters to some people in one of these things, these churches, and they're going to be published right along with the writings of Moses and David and all the prophets. I mean, Peter, you're the man. Oh, well, why didn't you tell me that to start with? If that's the case, Jesus, we're all right. You're good with me. John, you get to write five books. Gospel of John, three epistles, and Revelation. And let me tell you, people are going to be mesmerized and obsessed with the book of Revelation. They're going to be trying to figure out for for a couple thousand years, they're going to be trying to figure out what in the world you were talking about in that book. And I tell you, it's going to be amazing. And people are going to name their sons after you for the next couple thousand years. Your name's going to be the most common name for baby boys. Oh, and you're a saint too, you know? And they're going to name churches and universities and hospitals and cities after you. Really, Jesus? Well, why? You don't say... Well then, count me in. And Judas, <laughs> you're going to be famous too. <laughs> you're going to, people are going to know your name and you've got a part in the movie, Judas. So, good for you. Guys, let me tell you what hangs in the balance. You're going to carry the most significant message ever given to humanity. You're going to carry it to the next generation. And because of you, this message is going to make it out of the first century. And then it's going to spread like wildfire around the world for hundreds and hundreds of years. They didn't know that. All they knew that this teaching was weird now. And following Jesus was getting harder and it was going to cost them something. And I don't know if it's going to work out in our favor. Let me just ask you this. Do you know what hangs in the balance? 
Do you know what hangs in the balance of your willingness to continue to follow Jesus even with your doubts? Do you know? Want me to tell you? I can't because I have no idea. Just like the apostles didn't know. But some of us have been Christians long enough to know that if we had bailed out after the first two or three or five or ten years, we know what we would have missed. If we'd bailed out because of questions that we had and inconsistencies and contradictions that we thought we saw, we know that after we had pulled out years later, we still wouldn't have answers for those questions. We probably picked up some scars and bruises and baggage along the way, but we still wouldn't have our questions answered. So I've got to tell you, for me, there have been lots of times over the years where I just decided I'm going to carry my questions with me. I'm going, to, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to bring my doubts with me. Because it's not the doubts that are the problem. It's what I do with them that matters. So here it is. And you want to know what to do with your doubts? You're know, like, I sat here all this time and suffered through this for this point. This is your point, really, Todd? This is my point. This is as deep as I get. <laughs> just bring them with you as you follow Jesus the best that you know how. Because when you consider the options, there are no good options. And honestly, no one has given you so much evidence that he is who he claims to be. If you keep coming to this church and you get to sit week after week with people who would tell basically the same story, you know, I had lots of questions. I had lots of doubts. I followed for a while. Then I let the questions and the doubts consume me and I left. I kind of drifted. Couldn't follow Jesus anymore for a while. But now I'm back and I still have some of the same questions. I still wrestle with some of the same doubts, but I'm back. Because I've come to know, maybe the hard way, but I've come to know that he is the Holy One of God and he's worthy to be followed. What you do with the doubts makes all the difference. Before you get all logjammed with your questions, consider the options. If you're listening to this message today and you're not a Christian, you haven't really even taken the first step toward becoming a follower of Jesus, you're like, wait, I've been coming to church here for a few weeks. I thought I was a Christian, but now maybe I'm not. I don't know. I've got so many questions. Listen, maybe you don't even think of them as doubts because they're just straight up questions. I want to challenge you to consider the options. I know Jesus made some pretty huge claims, but who else could back it up like he did? I mean, who else even offers you eternal life? Nobody. Who else died for your sin? Nobody. Who else died and came back to life and was seen by over 500 people at one time after his resurrection? Nobody. And yeah, there'll be some things that you never understand. But you know what? We've got to be okay with that. There are a lot of things about everyday life that no one has ever been able to answer and explain to me to my satisfaction. For instance, I still clip on a microphone. I don't understand how this works. And don't think you can explain it to me, because you can't, because I'm not that smart. I still turn the key in the ignition in my car. And you're like, well, let me explain. No, you can't explain that. I still send text messages, and I still Skype my kids, and I still love my satellite TV. Got some questions about all that. So yeah, you think there are going to be some questions about Jesus and about the Trinity and about end times and prophecy and theology and doctrine and creation in the Bible. There will be some things you don't understand. But I'm telling you, after walking with Jesus for 40 years, he's the best option you have. When I think about that night when I accepted Jesus as my Savior as an eight-year-old praying the sinner's prayer with my parents on the front pew of the Granville Beach United Baptist Church in Lower Granville in Nova Scotia, March 27, 1977, When I think about the night around a campfire at the end of a week-long youth event in July of 1983 and responding to the call of God in my life to serve him in church ministry, 
When I think about the times when I wrestled with God, with how am I going to relate to God as a person? How should I approach Him? What should my ministry in the local church look like? How should my church, what should my church teach about how we approach God? What are the open hand and closed hand issues? How do I reconcile the inconsistencies I see in the lives of people I trust and respect? What do I do with the horrible things that I've seen done throughout human history in the name of Jesus and Christianity? When I think about what I could have done with those questions, when I think about the path that a different decision could have led me down, when I think about who I wouldn't have met, when I think about who wouldn't have been placed in my life to be an influence on me, when I think about experiences I never would have had because I let some questions cause me to walk away from a life of wholeheartedly following Jesus as best I knew how, that's humbling. And I just thank God over and over and over. I had no idea what hung in the balance. And neither do you. To whom shall we go? Maybe you've been considering this for a while. I really am winding down. Maybe you've been considering this for a while. I I think I'd be missing an opportunity this morning if I didn't give you a chance to close the deal. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you've been considering this whole deal, the whole package, and the truth is coming front and center for you, and you're beginning to realize, I don't have to have all my questions answered. Cool. I don't have to have all my doubts addressed. I can bring my questions. I can bring my doubts with me as I follow Jesus. Like Jesus is cool with that. If you're here this morning and you're at that point, I want to give you a chance to seal the deal and have a moment in time. Because I had a moment in time. I remember it. I want to give you a chance to make the decision to place all your faith and all your trust in Christ's death on the cross as a payment for your sin. So I want to lead you in a prayer. This prayer doesn't make you a Christian, okay? A prayer is a way that we communicate with God to express a decision that you've made in your heart to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So let's, let's all bow our heads, if you would. If I'm talking to you this morning and you're at that place, you're like, yeah, it's time for me to cross a line of faith. To bring my doubts and questions with me and step out and follow Jesus and trust him with my eternal salvation. You can pray this prayer with me silently right now where you are. You can change the words, use your own words, say something like this. Say, Lord, I believe I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus came to be my Savior. I'm placing all my trust in Jesus' death on the cross as a full payment for my sin not trusting in my background, not trusting in my own efforts. I'm not trusting in my church participation. I'm not trusting in my baptism. I'm putting all my faith in who Jesus is and what he did on my behalf. Lord, receive me into your family. I accept your gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Now let me pray. Father, I know that there are men and women and teenagers who are on the verge of a decision about what to do with all this, about what to do with their doubts and their questions and their struggling. And right now, to run just seems to be so much easier than to stay. To bail because of the doubts and the questions seems to make so much more sense. God, I pray that you'd give them the courage to settle in, to wait long enough for the fog to clear, to say, if not Jesus, who? If he isn't worthy of my full devotion, what exactly is he worthy of? Give us the wisdom to not simply back away or even to run away, but to look honestly at our options and to embrace the calling of Jesus to bring our doubts with him as we follow him. Heavenly Father, thank you that these men in John chapter 6, they stayed with you that they continue to follow with all their questions and their doubts. We live and walk in their footsteps today. We are their legacy.
So they realized there was nowhere else to go. There was no better option. And they had no idea what hung in the balance. And they gave their lives to following Jesus. I pray, God, that that would be our story as well. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.